Well, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to LSE and welcome to the 2012 uh, Gwilym Lecture. These uh, annual lectures have been going on since uh, 2005 in honour of Sir, Sir Patrick Gwilym, uh, who is an alumnus of the school and was a former governor of the school. And I'm really pleased that Patrick and his wife are both able to be with us this evening. Uh, Sir Patrick was the chairman of Standard Chartered uh, Bank before he uh, retired. And so we would like to thank Standard Chartered, not only for their support of these lectures, uh, but also for an endowed uh, chair, the chairholder, is also with us tonight. Now, to date in these lectures, we've tended to focus on Asia. And, of course, Asia is a very important region. It, it's rapid growth and it's rising uh, economic and also political influence made them obvious choices. But after seven years, we thought it was about time that Africa uh, got a look in. And so we, we decided that we should look at the uh, de development of uh, Africa south of the uh, Sahara, an area of enormous potential, but an area with perhaps more than its fair share of problems uh, to overcome before that potential can actually be released. Now, it's within that context that I want to extend a really warm welcome uh, to, to uh, Malam Sanusi. He's an extremely qualified speaker to talk about the prospects and problems of Africa, as I'm sure you will agree. He has been the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria since 2009. And I know uh, from Mervyn King that being a bank governor is a problem at any time, but being a governor during these financial crises uh, is obviously especially hard. He's had a long career in, in banking, but and as befits him talking to us tonight, he's, he's also a scholar. And he has done a lot of scholarly research looking at uh, uh, law, Islamic banking, and the relationships between religion and our so, so society. In late 2010, he was named Central Bank Governor of the Year by the FTT's magazine, The Banker. And only a month or so ago, He's just been uh, uh, actually awarded the Africa Person of the Year by the Forbes uh, magazine. So you can imagine that we're very, very proud that he's agreed to uh, speak to us tonight. He will speak for about 45 to 50 minutes and then has agreed to take uh, questions. Um, before I ask him to give his lecture, can I do 
two things. One is to express on behalf of the school uh, our sadness at the appalling events that are happening or have happened in the north of Nigeria, uh, an area where I know you come from. And secondly, I need to tell everybody who understands these things that if they want to follow this uh, lecture, they should go to the hashtag, which is LSE Africa. Uh, we will be recording, or we are recording this lecture, and hopefully, uh, if everything goes well, there will be a podcast for you to uh, download in due course. Uh, can I ask you to turn your mobile phones off as well, please, if you haven't done so already? So, without more ado, can I ask you to give your talk about the global banking crisis and African bankers' response? Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and may I begin by thanking the LSE and Standard Chartered for this invitation and this honor. Okay, to, um, to address you on the global financial crisis and African Central Bank's um, response. Um, there will be a paper and there is a PowerPoint presentation, which I don't know why they do this because I never use them. Um, the, um, usually the paper is for distribution and I make sure there's always a paper um, so that when I say the wrong things I can refer to the paper as evidence that I was quoted out of context. Um, um, I've been told that this is the closest I'm going to get to a novel lecture um, and therefore I've come quite prepared in terms of um, um, the documentation. Um, and I'd like to say just for um, clarification, um, I did find the timing auspicious because yesterday there was a big game here that I thought we were going to win. Um, unfortunately, Arsenal lost. Um, so if at any point in time uh, you get the sense that you're listening to a miserable person, it is because you're listening to a miserable person. Now, um, perhaps the best place to begin this talk is to go over a few weeks ago when I received an interesting invitation from the Royal Amsterdam Foundation. And the Queen um, had this annual symposium. And I was invited to speak along with Justin Lin, the Chief Economist of the World Bank, and uh, Mr. Martin Wolf of the FT. But what I found interesting was they wanted me to speak on what Europe could learn from Africa's handling of the crisis. And I thought it was interesting because um, it did say that um, Europe is looking at other parts of the world and basically asking how central banks responded to this crisis. And perhaps there is, um, for once, something that we can share in terms of our experience uh, coming out of 2007-2008. So what I would like to do, and most of what I will say, not all of it, you'll probably find in the papers, and I do hope uh, we can revise the papers later to um, capture whatever it is that goes into the lecture that's not in the paper. What I would like to do is uh, begin by talking about how the crisis affected my country, Nigeria, 
and it did affect our country um, in a far more significant way than other African countries. Um, how we responded to it and how it provided for us an opportunity, uh, not just for redefining the structure of the Nigerian banking system, but um, developing new strategies uh, for preparing the economy to cope with um, any second um, rounds of this, of, of this type, of, type of crisis. Uh, now, the global crisis of 2007-2008 um, started and Africa was at the beginning almost totally um, isolated from it because of the decoupling, um, because of the lack of integration of African banks, African financial systems into the international financial system. So we did not have any uh, first round impact um, hit us. Um, Nigeria was hit by the second round effects um, through two principal channels. Uh, one was the commodity price channel. Um, what happened to all prices, as you recall, in 2006 at the height of the bubble, all prices had gone as high as $147 a barrel. Um, at some point in 2009, all prices had crashed to less than $40 a barrel. And as is usual in resource-rich countries, there was always a very strong correlation between commodity prices and financial market asset prices. And we did have a stock exchange that at the time the oil price was at 147 in 2007 was the world's best performing stock exchange. In 2009, it was the world's worst performing stock exchange. Um, and the simple reason, of course, is that every time um, oil price went up, uh, we sold the oil, we monetized the revenues, the money found its way to the balance sheet of banks, and from the balance sheet of banks into the capital market and a bubble then built locally. So when um, oil price um, crashed, and at the same time we had a Niger Delta crisis with output crashing, uh, there was a major collapse in government revenues and liquidity in the system, and the stock market also crashed. Now it became very clear from 2008 onwards that there were major problems. And the macroeconomic side, um, the central bank had to devalue the Naira by about 25% in order to uh, protect reserves because of the capital flight. And we had to adopt the usual uh, measures of central banks, making adjustments to cash reserve requirements, um, liquidity ratio requirements, um, had an expanded discount window allowing banks to borrow against an expanded class of assets. Um, but these, as we have seen in Europe, just address symptoms of a crisis. If banks need capital, they need capital. If you don't put in capital, um, any kind of liquidity measure has to be temporary. So by 2009, when I became governor, it was very clear that a significant part of the Nigerian banking industry was on the brink of collapse. And if it did collapse, it would have brought down the industry as a whole. And it was also clear that the sources of crisis were two. Uh, one uh, was significant exposure to the capital market, uh, with banks lending huge amounts of money to stock brokers and asset management companies, and also um, taking depositors' funds and trading on their own account, basically speculating um, and taking advantage of the bubble, much like um, the banks um, in Europe did, basically high leverage with huge concentrations um, to a particular asset class. Uh, the second source uh, was um, exposure to petroleum marketers 
who have been in the news recently over the fuel subsidy removal. Um, and I'm sure it's something that um, may come up in the Q&A. But basically, um, <laughs> <laughs> if there are any Nigerians with shoes, please warn before you throw them. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, and um, and you know, uh, and and those two those two um, sectors basically accounted for the uh, huge levels of non-performing loans with the banks. So what what I would like to do in the first part of my talk for the next ten fifteen minutes is basically say how did we approach this problem, and then what have we done after uh, uh, to prepare the system for coping for what we see as potential um, challenges coming out of Europe and now coming out of um, possibly China, India, Brazil, uh, who were the major engines for growth um, at the last time and who may not provide that um, engine in the event uh, of, um, of a double dip uh, recession. Um, the first thing, of course, was to try to identify the problem. And we sent in um, teams of examiners to look very closely at the banks and at their portfolios. And we discovered to our horror that the problem was much worse than we thought it was from outside. That eight banks were in a grave situation and these banks out of the 24 accounted for 30% of total liabilities and 40% of total assets in the industry. And in each of these cases, um, what was apparent at the beginning was that the banks had basically taken depositors' funds and were trading largely on their own shares. There was one bank that owned 25% of itself through subsidiaries. Um, and um, others had um, basically um, lent money irresponsibly to stockbrokers. Um, the share price was going up. As we know, the stock market is uh, driven by what they call the biggest fool theory. Uh, you buy a share for £10 and hope that a bigger fool will buy for £12. And he buys for 12, looking for the bigger fool to buy at 15. Until the biggest fool buys at 20, and he can't find anyone to buy after that. Then it starts coming back down. And so we had so many uh, of the biggest fools um, in the banking industry. And they're left holding the shares when the stock market started going down. And unfortunately, they were not buying those shares from their savings. They were buying the shares from depositors' funds, from the, from the savings of Nigerians who put the money in the banks. Now, the history of Nigerian banking crisis did not start with 2008. We've had several crises in the past. And what's always happened in the past is these risks are taken, the banks go under, they're handed over to the National Deposit Insurance Corporation, the NDIC, and they're called failed banks. And then the depositors lose their money, they get paid a small amount, insured deposits, uh, the directors and the management go ahead, um, there's some bad news, uh, then they, they go and build their houses abroad, and they come back later, and they become senators, and they become governors, and they become ministers, and they are captains of industry. And um, everybody lives happily thereafter. Um, what we said in 2008 uh, and, and 2009 was, um, banks don't fail. They're killed. And we were going to save the banks, and we we're going to find the people who killed the banks. So the first thing was to 
take action. And for each of those eight banks, uh, we removed the chief executive officers and the executive directors and replaced them with management appointed by the central bank. We then injected enough money in those banks to make sure that they kept afloat while we figured out how to recapitalize those banks. But then having stepped into the banks, we then discovered that the problem was not really, in most cases, a simple case of bad credit decisions or bad risk management. That in fact, some of those numbers did not represent loans, but money stolen out of the banks. That people had set up SPVs, and the lenders and the borrowers were the same people. And in some cases, the loans had actually been taken to buy property outside the country. In one case, we recovered 200 pieces of real estate in Dubai. And that's how bad it was. Plus property in South Africa, a property on the Potomac. SPVs had been set up, money had been taken out, and it's been, it had been going on for years. So the crisis for us afforded us an opportunity to see things that nobody had known were happening. As they say, when the tide goes down, you then know who's been swimming naked. And, um, and so uh, it became not just a case of regulatory, um, of risk management and bad credit decisions, but certainly uh, criminal activity. Uh, we have so far jailed one CEO. Um, I think we're likely to jail two more very soon. Um, if it's in trial. Um, and I, and I, d I did believe very strongly that the kinds of things that happened were things that um, would continue happening until people realized that there were certain lines that they could not cross. And that banks are first and foremost institutions that are entrusted with the safety of customer deposits. And yes, you can make money, but you cannot make money by taking careless risks. Now, but having done this, uh, we had to fix um, major issues of corporate governance. And some of the steps we took are steps that are being debated now um, in Europe. Uh, I think I've seen um, reports uh, where some are being contemplated for introduction in the UK from 2019 or 2015. Um, we have, for example, uh, broken up universal banks, uh, no bank in Nigeria can own a subsidiary that is in non-banking business. Um, so if you're a commercial bank, uh, your subsidiaries are in commercial banking. And if you want to do merchant banking, you acquire a different merchant banking license. Um, they can have holding companies that can own commercial banks and asset management corporations, but we've now introduced very strict rules that ensure transparency and arm's length relationships between two companies in one hold, hold, hold co. The interesting thing was when we issued the new guidelines and gave the banks the option of remaining universal banks or commercial banks, 21 out of the 24 banks, initially 20 out of 24, now 21 out of 24 opted to sell the subsidiaries. Because once it became clear that depositors funds could no longer be used, for those businesses, it became suddenly unprofitable. Um, and the models have changed. So without necessarily forcing anyone uh, to get out of the business, 
all Nigerian banks basically decided to exit asset management, real estate, um, and all sorts of um, booking offices that were used that were basically um, um, avenues for what we call um, deposit to private equity conversion, you know, you know uh, um, and, 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 and deposit equity swaps, you know. Um, so a bank would have um, what is called an investment banking subsidiary and place money um, with that subsidiary as a placement, and then that subsidiary would take that money and invest as private equity. Um, but, it, you know, it was a loan, and uh, when something happened to that investment, it hit the depositors' funds that were so, so risked. So now we've got rules um, around that, we've got limits around that, we've got transparency guidelines, and I think they just looked at them and said, well, look, it's not worth it. And um, so we've got um, these um, commercial banks. The other thing we've done is to impose certain changes in corporate governance. Now, some of them are very controversial. For example, um, we forced every bank CEO who had been in office for 10 years to leave. And not just leave, but to stay completely away from the bank for three years. Um, we also asked every non-executive director who had been sitting on the board of a bank for 12 years to leave. Um, and we therefore created a new pool of CEOs um, and created opportunities for changing some of the old ways of doing things because there was a strong correlation between CEOs who had stayed there forever. In many of those banks, we had CEOs that have been there for 20 years, 22 years. Uh, the so-called executive directors had started as very junior officers. Um, and so when they said to their colleagues, jump, they say, how high? Um, and it was important to make sure that nobody stayed long enough to so compromise the system and be so dominant that the auditor, the risk manager, the colleagues on the executive board um, were unable to stand up uh, to the CEO and ensure that things were done, including the board, because in most cases where a CEO has sit for more than 10 years, the CEO directly or indirectly controlled the bank. Now, they never disclosed. No CEO ever said he owned 5% or 10% of the bank. But it was very clear that they were appointing the directors. So we had cases where boards would uh, reject um, a, um, a request, and the CEO would turn around and approve um, and disperse. So there was a major problem uh, with corporate governance. Um, now, this did not just apply to the banks. Um, I, the, the central bank governor now, based on those rules, I cannot take up an appointment in any regulated entity for five years after leaving office. And none of my deputy governors can. And nobody in the central bank who's read the level of director can take up an appointment in a regulated entity for three years after leaving office. So um, we, we did try to also look at the possibility of people when they come to the end of their office um, planning um, a very soft, um, well-paying private sector job uh, and that influence some of the decisions that they take um, as regulators. Now I know um, I'm going to a country in two months where the central bank governor became the chairman of the board of the bank um, and I do not pass any judgment on that but you can infer from this what I think of that. Um, <laughs> And central bank governors never criticize other central bank governors, um, except by innuendo. <laughs> um, 
we have a rule um, that says auditors um, who have audited a bank for 10 years have to be changed. Because again, we saw that auditors um, stay in a place for so long and they get um, so comfortable uh, with the banks. And I have seen that those are also being considered right now um, in the European um, uh, financial system. Now finally, we set up an asset management corporation because that was the only way we could deal with the huge capital uh, requirements um, of those banks that were in a grave situation. The asset management corporation we built in Nigeria was based on a model um, given by three institutions in Malaysia that were built after the Asian financial crisis, the Dana Harta, the Dana Modal, and a debt restructuring desk. So we have a company that has basically three functions. One is to purchase non-performing loans uh, from the banking system at a price that is as close as possible to what is the estimated realizable value from the sale of the underlying assets. The second is to actually inject capital in those, into those institutions, um, inject money in exchange for shares, and prepare those institutions for mergers and acquisition. And the third was to hold onto the loans and restructure them and try to maximize recovery. Um, there are a number of unique features about the manner in which we did our asset management corporation. The first is that Amcon in Nigeria, the currency of Amcon is a bond guaranteed by the Federal Ministry of Finance and qualifying as an asset for the purpose of liquidity management and repose in the central bank. So treated like a government bond. So it's a 10, 15 year, we started with a three year zero coupon bond that will be replaced with 10, 15 year um, interest bearing bonds. But the unique thing about it is that the repayment, the redemption of this bond will be from a sinking fund. And that sinking fund is one into which Nigerian banks um, voluntarily, after a very nice breakfast meeting with the CEOs, Nigerian banks have agreed to pay the cost of the cleanup. So we're not passing this cost onto the taxpayer. So Amcon would put in the proceeds of the sale of the non-performing loans into the sinking fund. And if there is any gap in any one year, um, starting from this year, every Nigerian bank has very kindly uh, and graciously agreed to contribute 0.3% of its balance sheet into the sinking fund. And if there's any gap after that, um, the central bank governor shall politely request the banks to increase their contribution, and they would very happily do it. So, <laughs> so, um, so while, while Europe is debating whether the banks should bear the cost of um, their bailout or the taxpayers, um, our bankers have been very kind enough to agree to pay. And um, um, one of them is here, and, uh, and I hope she will express on my behalf the gratitude of the central bank uh, to them. Um, we try to encourage um, a new, um, for, uh, you know, an orderly development of the financial system. So we've got commercial banks. Uh, we're now likely to have a few merchant banks. One or two international banks have already indicated that they've applied for merchant, that they're applying for merchant banking licenses. 
we have specialized banks. We've already um, licensed one Islamic bank, uh, and we're looking forward to uh, licensing uh, PMIs. Um, so the idea is to try and see how we can move away from a history, and, and this brings me um, to the end of the um, section on, on the restructuring of the industry. We come from a history in which the banks have been everything. So the Nigerian bank was um, a deposit-taking bank, basically with a balance sheet that's 70, 80 percent um, savings and current accounts, very volatile deposits, but, at the, but it was given overdrafts, term loans, mortgages, doing private equity, um, underwriting. Um, it was everything from a venture capital company to a project finance company, okay, financing all of that with short-term liabilities. Um, now, what we've done is to take the banks out of that space. And working with the Securities and Exchange Commission and the capital market reforms, we do hope that the space now being opened up will be taken up by the institutions that should be in that space, private equity firms, venture capital funds, um, mutual funds, and the capital market will finally step up uh, to the plate, the pension funds, and provide the long-term financing required for long-term investments. Um, so that the huge maturity transformation risks that were taken by the banks um, can be taken. Now, I suppose Basel III hopes to achieve that with the differential guidelines and the liquidity um, um, guidelines that it has. Uh, what we have done is simply stop the banks from doing it. Okay, so there is no, we're not talking about increasing capital requirements for different types of maturities, basically saying you're a commercial bank, this is the business you should be in. If you want to be a private equity firm, or a venture capital company set up a venture capital fund, set up a private equity um, company. And I think one of the major problems that Basel III will have is that it falls into the same trap of thinking that by simply creating certain capital guidelines, you can um, alter behavior. Once um, a bank does its numbers and it finds that it can make a lot of money and it's worth it to raise that capital, it will do it. But that does not mean that the risk will not bring down the institution um, over time. Now, um, we were faced with huge strategic questions um, in the middle of the crisis. Um, when we, in 2009, December, we got the, the banks together, um, and this is one of the changes in process that we started in the Bankers Committee. Um, I called all bank CEOs and we locked ourselves up for a weekend. Um, the Committee of Governors and the Central Bank, it had never happened in the country. Um, all bank CEOs locked ourselves up for a weekend in a hotel and said, okay guys, what happened here? Okay, um, and now I know this is 2009, I know we all think our mothers have died, we're all miserable, um, but we will get over this crisis. But we're not going to get over it until we understand what went wrong. And one of the things that went wrong in Nigeria, which has gone wrong in Europe, which has gone wrong in the United States, is there was a complete disconnect between the balance sheets of banks and the real economy. The huge savings raised by Nigerian banks were deployed not to the finance of industry, not to the finance of agriculture, not to the finance of the real sector, but to speculation on asset prices. 
Now, I know we've heard this over and over again, and I, and I read this a lot in the discussion um, outside of Africa, but I have not seen, for example, um, any serious attempt to address this in, in, in a conscious and strategic manner. Now, the result of that is if you take the Nigerian economy, for example, 42% uh, of our GDP is agriculture. But as at 2009, less than 1% of bank lending went to agriculture. The small and medium enterprises uh, basically account for, what, 60, 70% of formal employment. Only 3% of bank lending went to SMEs. And where was the money? Oil and gas. And well, some to the very large oil companies that are busy polluting our waters and uh, you know, the telecoms companies. I mean, MTN has made more money in Nigeria than it ever thought it would make. Uh, you know, Nigerians, um, we, we're very talkative lots. So, hello, hello, hello. So, so if you, if you, so telecoms is, is, is very good. 167 million people that talk a lot. Uh, you can imagine, I mean, the bulk of the money made by telecoms companies doesn't come from text or data or providing bandwidth. No, it comes from talking, you know, hello, hello, if I have MTN. <laughs> if you land in Lagos, you see a big billboard of telecoms company, and it says, hello. <laughs> and that's it, and that tells you exactly where they make their money. And, um, and the rest was going to about 30% to capital markets, uh, lending to stock brokers, uh, and then, of course, our friends, the oil marketers. And uh, maybe this is the time, uh, before you start throwing your eggs, maybe this is the time when I should say a little bit about why I got so obsessed with the subsidy regime. Um, uh, first of all, um, the term subsidy, and I, I'm, I'm sorry if I seem to be talking to Nigerians here, but I, I've read all the Facebook comments. And <laughs> And I know half of the people uh, who are from Nigeria in this room are not happy with me. Okay, but the term subsidy was actually a misnomer for this arrangement. The Nigerian government was providing a hedge. A subsidy happens when you say, look, we'll pay 20% or 25% or 30% of the price. When you tell a country of 160 million people that no one will pay more than 65 naira per liter of fuel, irrespective of where the price of oil is, irrespective of where the exchange rate is, the government provided a hedge, and it had a naked position. There was absolutely no arrangement for any kind of tax and revenue measures in the event of rising oil prices. So you have an arrangement when oil price was $50 a barrel, when the exchange rate was 120 naira to the dollar, when the government was contributing maybe 10, 15, 20% of the cost of fuel. And it gets to a point where the government was paying more than the consumer. So you turn your car into the, into the um, station, fill your tank, pay 65 naira per liter, and the government pays 75 naira. It's simply unsustainable. And how was this payment being made? Based on documents. So the government effectively said to fuel importers, if you can bring me documents that suggest that you brought in 
10 million liters of fuel, I will pay you 7.5 billion naira. Now, in Nigeria, you'll produce those documents. <laughs> you produce those documents. Now, I've been saying this for two years, and you know, everybody thought, um, I, I once had a formal letter from BPRA protesting against what they said were wild allegations I was making, but we've just seen it last week with the customs officer saying, well, you know what happens is because our ports aren't big enough, the ship actually goes to Cotonou. So you, you, you establish an LC for 30,000 metric tons. You didn't know the ship couldn't land in Nigeria. So it goes to Cotonou and no controls. Nobody was there to see that the ship was actually emptied. Small vessels go in, bring in whatever they bring in. You come with documents saying you brought in 30,000 metric tons. I get subsidy based on that. Meanwhile, you sell half of the ship in Bene in the market at market price, and a quarter of what you bring in goes back across the border in tankers. And what you've seen last week says that last year we paid subsidy at the rate of 59 million liters of fuel daily. And before last week, the highest estimates we had of consumption was 35 million liters. And even that was two weeks old, because before then it was 24 million liters. So where was the 20 million liters going on which we paid subsidy at the rate of 80 naira per liter? In 2011, we sold $8 billion to petroleum marketers for the purpose of importing fuel. We paid another $8 billion <coughs> as subsidy, and $16 billion, that is 8% of Nigeria's GDP. And that was 100% of the total government revenues from the oil sector. Totally unsustainable. Now, I haven't yet come to that. Um, it's just um, to encourage you to please keep your shoelaces tight. Um, but um, what then happened with the banking industry was you had all these oil marketers that had borrowed a lot of money from the banks, and they had not paid. And the reason they didn't pay was that the fuel never came into the country, or only part of it came in. The rest was sold in neighboring countries, and the money, if you ask me, is probably in some real estate in Europe, in private jets, and in huge bank accounts elsewhere. <coughs> and that was what brought down the banking system. So for me, this was what got me interested in that sector. I mean, the capital market was fine. It was, it was easy to understand. But how was it that this sector of petroleum marketing could take so much money, okay, and then the money simply literally disappeared. There was no fuel, there were no receivables. Where was the cash? And that, and so it was um, a big fraud and it was a major part um, of the problem. Now, but not just we could blame the bankers for this, we had to ask a basic question. Why were the banks not lending to the real sector? And having come from a risk management background, 
I knew that some of the challenges were beyond the banks. The Nigerian economy, and in this I'll probably be speaking for many African economies, it's an economy that has huge structural deformities. You know, in our country, if, if you asked me to reduce the economic problems of Nigeria to one word, I would say linkages, externalities, value chains. This is a country that produces crude oil and imports refined petroleum products. The highest exports of the UK to Nigeria is refined petroleum products. We have a large cotton belt. We import textiles from China. We produce tomato locally. Nigeria is the world's biggest importer of tomato paste. We are the world's number one producer of cassava. We import cassava starch. We don't produce ethanol. We've got iron ore, iron and steel. We don't produce flat sheets. We've got huge gas reserves. We don't have power. We've got hides and skin. You know what we do with our cattle? They end up in the pot. No leather industry. We import leather goods from here. We have this delicacy in Nigeria called pomo. Which, which, in the, which in the textiles, which in, which in the leather goods industries in Italy and Spain uh, contributes to GDP, but which we very happily consume. <laughs> you know, and, and you can't, you simply cannot continue to run an economy where you continue to import what you can produce. And, and you know, we export what we don't produce. Believe me. I mean, it's not just fuel. I mean, I've already told you, we export fuel to the whole of West Africa, refined petroleum products. We import from the UK and export to cut all, all the fuel you get in Bene, in Accra, most of it comes from Nigeria. Not produced in Nigerian refineries, produced in refineries in the UK. We even had a military government in Nigeria that conducted an election in Liberia. I mean, seriously, General Abacha, conducted the freest and fairest elections in Liberia when there were no elections in Nigeria. So, so we've actually exported democracy. <laughs> so, so, um, so it has been a great miracle of sorts. Um, the converse you see of the Chinese miracle um, what we'd like to do is turn this miracle upside down so that we actually begin to export what we have. Uh, nothing wrong with exporting, but please export what you produce. And nothing wrong with importing, but import what you can't produce. In other words, um, why, why do you need to import textiles from China? I mean, today, after 30 years of Chinese growth, labor costs in China are higher than labor costs in Nigeria with the right infrastructure, with the right um, technology, you can beat the Chinese at their own game. Why don't you see China as a competitor? Why did you take away from China those industries that China took away from Europe? Why do we need to import tomato paste? I'm not saying build computers. I'm not saying build 
nuclear plants. I'm saying tomato paste. <laughs> Cassava starch. Shoes, bags, gloves. I mean, that's not too difficult, is it? Now, the only way you can do that is to have an overarching vision for the economy that seeks to reverse this process of deindustrialization and de-development that we've been at since the 1980s. And the only way you can do that is to have this coordination between the financial system and the government. So what that told us in 2009 was that we needed to start addressing these issues. And I said to the bankers, look, I'm tired of hearing banks say, I can't lend to manufacturers because manufacturers are not profitable. The reason they're not profitable is that they don't have power and they've got to provide their own electricity. You know, if a bank lends to a textiles company today, it's not lending to a textiles company. If you have a textiles plant in Nigeria, you've got to have your generator. So you've got to be your own power plant. You've got to provide your own security. You probably have to have your own fleet of vehicles. So you're a transport company, you're a power plant, you're a security company, and then you're a textile. Um, now, we said, why don't we begin to engage with the government on these key structural reforms that need to be made? Why don't we begin to engage with the government on how do you push power forward? So one of the things we did as Central Bank was to say one of the major problems facing power companies was they couldn't get access to long-term low-interest money. And so as part of our QE, we lent money to the banks at 1% for all lending to power plants at no more than 7% for a period of up to 15 years. And that would then provide finance for the power plants who would then invest in power generation or distribution. And we did the same thing for a number um, of other areas. So we worked with the government on pushing forward the power reforms. But the major engagement we've had in the last six to nine months was with agriculture. Agriculture is 42% of GDP, but it's primary production. And because it's primary production, it is not commercially viable. It's rain-fed. Farmers don't get access to high-yield variety of seeds. Yields on Nigerian agriculture and grains is 1.8 metric tons per hectare, compared to a global average of 3.6, and five or seven metric tons per hectare in other parts of the world. And these are things that can be fixed. It's been fixed in Southern Africa. It's been done in East Africa. It's something that can be done. It's about irrigation. It's about seeds. It's about fertilizer. It's about training. And it's about access to markets. How do you get access to markets? So we started this engagement in agriculture where we're trying to fix commodity value chains, identify 10 commodity value chains um, identify the constraints around those value chains. We're working with the ministry to fix those value chains and with the banks to provide finance for those value chains. We haven't gone far, but the result is in the last six to 12 months alone, we've tripled the amount of bank lending to agriculture to about 300 billion naira. Now, that is a beginning, but our hope is that by 2015, we would have moved bank lending to agriculture from less than 1% in 2009 to 7%. And that we can only do by working towards unlocking um, those value chains. So we've got rice, for example. You know, we import rice from Thailand, from India, 
Some of the rice we import is rice from grain reserves, five years old. You know, and we've got the capacity to produce the same quality of rice and process it and export it to the whole of West Africa. It's just about policy. So what has changed um, in terms of strategic engagement with the banking industry was to recognize that the banking system can no longer be a silo. The, the, you know, the reason the financial system got into this incestuous relationship where deposits, sorry about the word, deposits were being used to lend to the stock market was because there was no connection between the banks and government. So we opened up that space and we started telling the government, this is what you need to do if you want banks to lend to this industry. Um, so that um, is uh, going on. Um, I think um, we've made so much progress now. With Lagos State, we're going to start, we're going to throw out, there's going to be a lot of money in aquaculture. Uh, we're setting up tomato processing plants and canning plants. There's a whole um, initiative going on, on on rice processing mills. And hopefully in the next year or two, we will see that change. And that is going to be the long-term solution to this problem of bank assets being tied up to uh, um, the financial system. You've got to have real structural adjustment policy. And the subsidy removal is part of it. Stop subsidizing consumption. Why subsidize the importation of petroleum products? Why not subsidize the construction of refineries? Um, so again, just to clarify, I don't have any ideological opposition to subsidies. The United States subsidizes its cotton farmers. And the reason the Malian farmer cannot export cotton to America is because the amount of subsidy that the US gives cotton farmers is more than the GDP of Mali. And the reason the Malian farmer cannot export beef to Europe is because the subsidy in Europe per cow is more than the per capita GDP of Mali. So the Europeans subsidize production. We can subsidize production, subsidize construction of refineries, subsidize agriculture by providing uh, um, low, um, cheap um, equipment, by providing high yield variety of seeds, by providing fertilizer, by providing free training to the farmers, but don't subsidize imported consumption. That is not how to get the structural adjustment that you require. And if we did that, and if we had the right policy environment, then the money would follow, and the balance sheets of banks would begin to have a much more stable um, um, character. Now, this is not to say that if banks lend to the real economy, there won't, there won't be a crisis, because you can have a crisis originating in the real economy. But if you've got assets in agriculture, in different sectors of manufacturing, in oil and gas, in telecoms, in finance, you've got a sufficiently diversified balance sheet that protects you from the kind of carnage that we've seen um, in Europe and America and, um, I dare say, um, in Nigeria. Now, um, two more um, initiatives um, uh, that we've had that I'd like to talk about. I see I've got about 10 minutes left. Um, a, ma a major issue was obviously the transformation of the, of the payment system itself. It came out of the Bankers, bankers Committee. Um, one of the major problems with, with Africa is that the lending rates are very high. 
Now, obviously, there are a number of reasons for that. There is the lack of financial market deepening. There is the um, lack of um, a very active and um, deep capital market. Um, I know people are surprised at this. Um, Nigeria is the um, has Africa's third largest stock exchange. Uh, and I remember having a conversation with stockbrokers, you know, where I said, well, you know, the Nigerian Stock Exchange um, is the third largest stock exchange in Africa. And, and, and they clapped, you know, and I said it's got a total capitalization of $40 billion. Uh, and they clapped. And I said, well, that is the equivalent of half of the value of Goldman Sachs. Uh, and I was met with silence because it, 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 that was it. I mean, the, the entire market capitalization of a country of 167 million people, the second largest economy in Africa, is 50% of the value of Goldman Sachs after, after the financial crisis. <laughs> after the crisis. And, and, and so, with those kinds of markets, um, you, you, you have these distortions in, in the system. I've got these high rates of interest, but part of it is also the huge overheads carried by banks. And the fact that banks are investing a lot of money and carrying costs that are not related to banking. Um, why must every bank do its own cash management? Uh, why must every bank um, have its own data center? Why must every bank have its own disaster recovery site? And, and so we decided to get the banks together and say, look, um, there are things we compete on and there are things we cooperate on. And let's have a shared services program. And working with consultants out of Spain and basically uh, working on the payment system, having an increased focus on channels, moving transactions out of cash. And again, there have been unpopular policies. I know uh, I, for, for you in Nigeria, for you Facebook people, uh, I've been under a lot of attack over what I call the Cashless Nigeria uh, initiative. But you know something happened last week. The whole of Lagos was shut down. The banks were shut down and no one complained about a lack of cash. Because Cashless Lagos took off on December 31 last year. And nobody who had a card ran out of cash. The ATMs, we have POS terminals now that can go 48 hours without electricity. So we even decided in setting the standards for POSs that we would accommodate the inefficiencies in our system. We had a dedicated network from GLOW that guaranteed us 95% uptime. And in the absence of GLOW, we had a backup. So throughout the crisis, nobody complained about lack of cash in Lagos. And that is what we're trying to get the country to, to a point where people stop. And you know, a lot of the protests we hear don't come from, I mean, the protests were on behalf of ordinary people. But these were protests coming from people who are used to carrying huge amounts of Naira in Ghana must go bags uh, <laughs> in the night, you know, um, 20 million, 30 million. And they didn't like the idea, the central bank said that there was going to be huge penalties for cash movements. Um, if you want to take a 20 million naira bribe, I'm sorry, you've got to pay 10% of that as cost. Uh, um, so at least you can make it expensive. Uh, so maybe you can charge 22 million or 23 million. Um, but, you know, um, nobody can take that kind of money now with, without costs. Um, otherwise, well, give him your account number and transfer the money to me, you know, um, and then, of course, have an audit trail. 
But people are getting used to internet banking. People are getting more used to ATMs. Uh, businesses have reorganized the way they do business. And without these um, uh, changes, we're never going to have a modern banking system. And the result, um, or the projection, is that by 2014, we're going to bring down overheads in the banking industry by 30%. And that should translate into reducing the spread between deposit rates and the lending rates. It doesn't address all the issues, but by the time you've done shared services, um, you've, got, you've got things like improved power supply um, in the banking industry, we're then able to get low costs of borrowing and therefore um, speedy expansion of retail banking. Um, the other two um, issues we've done in the committee is um, last year, I'm sure you saw in the FT, um, the advertisement on what we call the sustainability principles. Uh, which is something that's been signed up by all Nigerian banks. Uh, and we're not exactly going to address all the environmental issues of Nigeria, but we focus on three areas. Nigeria is a country where the oil industry um, basically has done a lot of damage. Right? They've made a lot of money, but there's a lot of environmental damage, for example. And one of the things we've done is to focus on them and to say we want to have lending standards based on equator principles that will make sure that Nigerian banks do not provide financing for all companies that do not meet certain minimum standards as far as the environment is concerned. And we all sign up to that, so we don't undercut each other on the basis of competition. Now, the same thing with power. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on gas. We want to see how we can get into hydro and to renewable energy, and how we can encourage banks uh, to, to lend, and how we can set guidelines for that, and how we can work with government for having that. And finally, on agriculture, we want to get away from a focus on, and if you look at Nigerian agriculture, it's been, the GDP in agri has been increasing year on year for the last 10 years. But the increase has not come from increased factor productivity. It's come from increased factor intensity. We've just gotten more and more land under cultivation. And as the population increases, some of the violence you see in Nigeria is actually violence related to land. As the population increases and you get less and less land available for habitation, people get into each other's faces. Now we want to say, how do you stop this bush burning and land clearing and more land under, under, under cultivation and focus more on increasing the productivity of existing resources? And, and the banks are working, are, are working on that. One minute. And the final thing is, um, uh, we have declared this year, and um, I'm happy we have Bola Deshola here, the, G the MD of Standard Chartered. She's the chair, she's been the newly appointed chairman um, of, of a bankers' committee, subcommittee on women empowerment. We've declared this year the year of the woman in Nigeria. And, 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 th and this, this goes all the way from um, a central bank um, a plan to introduce a fund that would allow businesses owned and run by women um, to borrow at single digit rates of interest to an attempt to get the banks to commit by 2015 to a minimum percentage of board seats and top management positions for their women. Now, so, so basically by, by changing, by having this process where the central bank sits with the banks um, in a weekend and discusses and brainstorms on this is we're coming up with a method of collaboration where the industry as a whole is playing a role 
in the wider economy and is becoming more socially um, responsible. So the banks have agreed to pay for the cost of the bailout. The banks are focusing more on, real, on, on the real economy. The banks are contributing to policy. The banks are now concerned about issues of the environment and sustainability and issues of women. And sustainability, women, and the real sector, to my mind, capture what I see as the future of our continent. Thank you. Well, I know I, I cut the governor short, but uh, I'm sure that you would want to ask some questions, and I wanted to give you uh, time to do so. So, have you got questions? And please, may I ask, can it be a question? We don't want another lecture. Okay, so the lady, the stripes there, and the gentleman there, start off. Uh, my name is Taiwo Akpabio. I do appreciate you and I'm really proud of you. And I'm proud to be a Nigerian as well. Uh, my question is um, regarding the oil subsidy removal. Right. It's just a suggestion or, you know, the. <laughs> Right. Wouldn't, they, wouldn't you think it, sh it, it should be a better way of doing things by making sure that the refineries are in functioning order before you start removing subsidies? Because if, they, if the oil uh, refineries, if they're functioning, that would create a cushion, you know, to cushion the effect of the oil subsidy removal. You know, because I believe the oil sub the the, the okay. refineries. <laughs> that's that's your question, okay? <laughs> we got, haven't got along. <laughs> right. okay. There was a gentleman there. Right. Thank you very much, Gondosinisi, uh, for your time today. Uh, my name is Ahmed Al Mahi. Uh, I'm an ex structured finance banker. Um, I'm currently working uh, for a solar power plant developer in North Africa, and also a uh, question. <laughs> <laughs> Take, sorry, and this round I'll take one more question. There's a gentleman in the middle with his hand still up. Okay. Hi. Oh, Your Excellency, I really appreciate you this evening. I feel very proud. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is very simple. Uh, I work for Standard Chartered Bank in London. Uh, my question is, in the course of addressing the um, 
structural imbalance, I mean economic crisis in Nigeria, you never made reference to bankers' remuneration, which is quite a key issue in Europe and the UK at the moment. I wanted to see what your thoughts are regarding that issue. Okay, thank you. Right. Now, I know there's hundreds of questions, but we have to let the governor at least reply to some of them. Okay. Um, well, the first question was on, was on refineries. Um, if you look at how much we're supposed to have been paying on subsidies, we move from rapidly from 400 billion naira per annum to 650 billion naira in 2010 to 1.4 trillion naira in 2011. Now, um, in 2011, the total debt of the federal government of Nigeria was 875 billion additional debt for that year. So the total borrowing of government was not even sufficient to finance what we allegedly paid as subsidy. The first question for me is, is there any sense in continuing with a program that gives such great room for arbitrage and that is clearly fraught with corruption, especially the kind of corruption that's very difficult to monitor? I mean, if, if a customs officer signs a piece of paper and says, and in fact, the customs officer don't even sign, you know, because petroleum products are duty-free, customs doesn't even check. So anybody who establishes an LC can bring that document and collect subsidy. And just a drain on the economy. I mean, I, I, I come out here and I go to the rest of the world. And you know, the first question I'm asked, well, how come oil price is up by 40% and your output is back after Niger Delta and your reserves are not going up? Now, I can't say people are stealing the money, <laughs> which is what I would like to say. <laughs> okay, but even if you stopped the present set of thieves from stealing, so long as the opportunity is there, it's just a matter of time for it to come back. Now, and I've also heard this thing about, well, the government has failed to fix refineries, the government has failed to deliver this, and therefore it should not. And I say, well, you know, if, you, if, your house was, if your wife was smoking and your house caught fire, you wouldn't want the fireman to say, I won't come until you can convince me that your wife won't smoke again. So we've got to stop this, and then we've got to fix the refineries. Uh, the two are not mutually exclusive, but I don't think we can wait. Um, now, why have... Well, I'm not sure, well, have I been successful? Um, well, thank you for the implied compliment on that. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, whenever, whenever you start a process of change, um, I've always said one of the first things you need to do is ask yourself, who are those who have been benefiting from this state of affairs? Because they're going to fight back. Um, so, for example, when we went into the banks and removed the CEOs, I knew that there were people who were not in banking, who were not staff of banks, who had been benefiting from that system. The borrowers, for example, who were very rich and who had, who had been used to borrow money from banks. I mean, you know, debt in Nigeria had become like equity. You borrow from a bank and you know you never, you never have to pay, even for instance, the CEO. Um, now, if you remember, one of the first things I did, which was very controversial, was to publish the names of the debtors. And it was a list of who's who in Nigeria. I just published the names of all the bad debtors and how much they owed the banks. Okay, so that dealt uh, with that group. Um, and as, <laughs> okay, and, and, and for the CEOs, uh, since I knew that they were going to go to court to challenge their removal, they were removed and the next day we slapped criminal charges against them. So, mm -hmm. so they then had to decide whether to pay their lawyers to get them out of jail or pay the lawyers to get them their jobs back. 
so um, I think I think a lot of these things come with understanding that you've got vested interests and they'll fight. Okay, but also remembering that they're not very smart. <laughs> okay, I mean, it, they, they've got basically two tools. Okay, um, they, they try to bribe you. If they can't bribe you, they try to intimidate you. So if you don't want their money, if you're not afraid of them, you can take them on and bring them down. Uh, what can the private sector do? Well, you can, you can, you can on, on the one hand, help us um, communicate very clearly uh, what you want, uh, the government to do in policy. Um, and you can try to be a proper private sector. I mean, I, I, I was at a, a seminar in Nigeria where I said, look, when, when, when Nigerians talk about a private sector, and when they talk about entrepreneurs, 70% of them are rent-seeking parasites. There's no entrepreneurship. And now, anybody, anybody in Nigeria who has money, who is not a civil servant, is private sector. And now it doesn't matter whether you get the money from inflated contracts, it doesn't matter whether you get it from borrowing money and not paying back, you call yourself an entrepreneur. You know? <laughs> and um, you've got no business to show for it. Okay? You don't employ anyone apart from maybe your secretary and a protocol officer. Okay? So, so we can try to, by, by properly defining ourselves okay, as um, key players in the real economy and then properly and transparently defining for the government what policies we'd like to see in place to enable us uh, move the economy from this perpetual stage of primitive accumulation which we have been mired into real capitalism. Uh, bankers' remuneration is not a big issue for me. And frankly, I don't see why it's such a big issue in Europe, for a simple reason. Um, there, there is a problem with bankers' remuneration and the, and the manner of the incentives that have been set for the bankers. But I think in Europe, there has been this big elephant in the room that no one is willing to face, which is that the regulators failed. Not, the bankers had problems, but who allowed the banks to take the risks that they took. If, if a bank chief executive runs a good bank, if he does not take irresponsible risks, if he makes a lot of money, I have no problem himself, he's paying himself a bonus. Because what I hear is they, pay, they paid so much. Well, if they paid so much uh, out of profits that they make from taking responsible risks, that's what the private sector is there for, okay? but. If they took irres irresponsible risks and then paid themselves, then that's a problem. Um, and I have not seen action taken against those who have taken those risks. I hear Sir Fred is going to be stripped of his uh, knighthood, uh, possibly, but uh, I think a lot more needs to be done. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and um, I, I'm, there, have, there has been some discussion now of investigations. I think the FT yesterday had something. Uh, until we actually begin to hold individuals responsible for the kind of decisions that were taken that led the banks to where they were. Um, I mean, cutting down a bonus from two million pounds to 1.5 million pounds, frankly. Okay, there's so many hands, I'm gonna to have to be very selective. There's a gentleman in a white shirt who's been very, very uh, keen. All right, there's, uh, there's a lady there in purple and a gentleman um, just there in the about sixth row, okay?
Good evening, sir. Um, my name is Aniola Leimo, and I used to be a student here. Um, my question is basically um, with regards to the quote that you said earlier, um, and you said, banks don't fail, people kill them. Um, I submit that subsidies are not bad, um, that people game the system. Um, here in the UK, um, where people claim welfare um, benefits um, wrongly, um, what the government does is try to find the people who have claimed the benefits wrongly are supposed to stop in the welfare system. <laughs> so, as opposed to removing the subsidy, do you not, which I, I, I think um, is a tax on everybody, the middle class and the masses, everybody who uses PMS in Nigeria, subsidy removal is a tax on them. Okay. As opposed to removing subsidy, why don't we, in the same way that you went after the bankers, go after the people who are looking for these rent-seeking opportunities? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, there's lady in purple. Yes, um, can I please ask, um, you've explained um, how you're going to go up and um, improve you know, the banking system in Nigeria, but can I ask, um, how are you, how are you going to, are you advise, working closely with the, with the government to tackle corruption? Because if that is not tackled, the best plan is not going to work. That's my question. And also, okay. uh, uh, sorry, just, just the second um, part of that as well. Um, you, the, the all subsidy removal, is, it, it's needed, but I think the way it was done was really bad and it's cost lots of lives. Okay, there's gentlemen, yes, just there. Yeah, and that's round two. Um, <laughs> we have short answers and we can get another round. Yeah, I really like the nature of your speech tonight because I feel it's one of those speeches which has won the hearts of so many Nigerians in this room. And my question is relating to information. I feel the way your policies have been put in place, right now the Nigerians in this room understand everything you are doing, but the majority of people back home in Nigeria have no idea where you're heading. And the reason why people were happy with the subsidy and sad with the new policies is because they were not involved. And I think in as much as these policies will potentially create a brighter future for Nigeria, I think perhaps one point we are missing is that we could create a brighter future which ends up denigrating the position of people in Nigeria to second-class citizens, even in their own country. Because right now, sorry, we are creating sorry, better politics sorry, without sorry. empowering them. I said no I just want to find out just question. If, yeah, I want to find out if that's something you are taking into consideration, how to ensure that people in Nigeria are actually well-informed, to ensure that the policies you put in place will actually be protected at the end of your tenure. Thank you. Okay, um, you know, um, on, the, on the first question, I did say that, in my view, these are not subsidies but a hedge. Now, now there the are three things wrong with, with the subsidy regime. Okay, and the first is that it is a hedge, and you simply don't do it. No government should say to its population, no matter what the price of this product, and the government has no control over that price. I mean, if the Nigerian government had gone into a long-term contract with refineries abroad and hedged its position, that's fine. But to tell Nigerians that they will not pay more than X for a commodity whose price is driven by forces totally outside the control of the government without any kind of hedge is very bad economic policy. Secondly, 
when you have a country where 23 of your states share land borders with neighboring countries, where you don't have enough control over where your vessels land when SLs are established, to have the kind of price differential between Nigeria and neighboring countries, the, the, the nearest fuel price to Nigeria is three times or two and a half times what's sold in Nigeria. It's simply no way you're going to, we were subsidizing the whole of West Africa. Now if you want to be Father Christmas, that's fine, but let, but let us then say we're subsidizing the whole of West Africa. But you've seen the numbers. I mean, what we were paying subsidy on twice the consumption of Nigeria. And simple logic, Nigeria is 60% of the population of West Africa, QED. So we're subsidizing West Africa. Now that is wrong. Now the third is what you say about corruption. Um, you see, under the military, um, if you remember, under General Buhari, it was life imprisonment for smuggling petroleum products. Okay, I think at one time under Abacha, it was death sentence. You don't do that in a democracy. So if you don't have the tools for having these kind of laws and enforcing them, you've got to take away the incentive for people to do it. And the only way to take away the incentive is to narrow the differential between how much you sell fuel in Nigeria and how much you sell in the neighboring countries. Otherwise, you can as well start building uh, um, barbed wire fences you know, across, uh, across your borders to make sure that uh, that, that fuel doesn't, doesn't cross the border. Um, how it was done, I'm sure that we all agree uh, it could have been done with some better communication. Um, and I think um, we, we, we must take responsibility for that. But I would like to say that whenever you remove a subsidy or a hedge like this, there will always be a reaction. I mean, in Britain, we saw people on the streets over deficit uh, cuts by the Tory government. Um, the Greek economy was about to collapse, but over austerity measures, the Greeks were burning down Athens. And we saw parliamentarians in Italy come to blows. This policy is never going to be a popular policy. There is no amount of explanation that's going to make it popular. Okay? And I think what we had to do as a government was to take a decision. Do you want to do what is right for the economy, or do you want to do what is popular? I mean, people wanted to burn my house in Kano. So I'm, as a person, I'm very unpopular. Okay? But you know, you're not central bank governor to be popular. You're there to manage an economy. And we have a responsibility for the next generation. We can continue borrowing money and paying this subsidy for the next two, three years, and then leave the next government with an unsustainable debt profile. And the decision had to be taken to stop it. Um, and um, we will continue to explain it, and, and we'll continue to see, to listen. And I think the point on, on corruption is, is, um, is well taken. Um, I have tried to fight corruption in the area over which I'm responsible. Um, I have continued to support all those who see corruption should be fought. I was the first to alert the country about the corruption in the subsidy regime over two years ago. Um, but then I'm not the Attorney General, I'm not the Inspector General of Police, I, I'm, I'm only a central bank governor. Um, I will continue to play my part and I do hope that we'll continue to improve as a country uh, in fighting corruption and clean up uh, uh, this image. And I hope all of you um, Nigerians um, will join us in the fight against corruption. Okay. Well, <laughs> there are about 30 hands up, but I'm afraid we really have run out of uh, time. I promised that uh, it would finish at 8. 
Now, can I ask you to stay in your seats while the Governor and I leave? And I'm sure uh, we want to escape the shoes, of course. Uh, and I'm sure you would like to thank the Governor in the usual way for what was a great talk.